put me through the ringer. He is very, very particular. He's very hands-on. He's a perfectionist. He knows what he wants. Um, he likes to deal with a person and then eventually connect his people. Until we got all this stuff right, no one else was looped in. You know, he, he was talking about the lighting plan. I said, can I light in my light, you know, loop in my lighting director? We'll get to that. Welcome to the New Wave Entrepreneur, where we dive headfirst into Web 3.0, personal sovereignty, spirituality, and psychology. These conversations are unfiltered access to brilliant minds and actionable advice that will prepare you for the rapidly changing world. So jump in. The water is warm and the tide is rising. Ah, my friends, welcome back to another episode of the New Wave Podcast. Daniel DiPiazza checking in with you here and so happy to have you. Uh, today's episode is really, really cool. Such a fun one. Uh, you're going to meet my friend Christopher McDonald. Now, Christopher is one of the lead or head bookers in uh, in all of music television in the, in the 2000s, 2010s, and uh, even back into the 90s. And what's so interesting about him is he has stories that are just one of one because he had interactions with some of the world's biggest celebrities. And on this podcast, he shares stories about Eddie Murphy, Prince, Kanye West, and more uh, when he was booking uh, when he was booking talent for the Arsenio Hall show, Tavis Smiley, and others. And he is a fantastic human being who is so funny. And this show, for sure. I was gut busting myself, laughing so hard. So you're going to see me just losing my shit. So funny. You're going to love this episode. And uh, make sure that while you're here, you tap into New Wave Entrepreneur World. Our, our, whole, our whole community is at newwaveentrepreneur.com. And by the way, you'll notice that uh, everything on that website is fresh and updated. Sometimes the the podcasting services don't update everything correctly right away, like Spotify, for instance, or iTunes, or they just fuck things up. But our our platform has everything as as we intended it. Plus, we have additional show notes. Uh, we have free stuff like uh, like our productivity guides, our crypto guides, and uh, and lots of other cool stuff. Workshops that are coming up. It's all on the New Wave Entrepreneur website. So that's newwaveentrepreneur.com. Everything is in the show notes. Uh, enjoy this episode with Christopher. Uh, you are going to love it. And I'll see you on the other side. And we, we rescheduled from last week because I know that sounded like a fake excuse, like a, my dog ate my homework. <laughs> my dog really did dig her way from under the fence and was happening right as you, right as we were supposed to do this. And, um, you know, this is, so we have two dogs. The first dog is awesome. The second okay. dog really needs a lot of help. And so I didn't even have a collar on her or I didn't have a, a name tag on her because honestly, Chris, truth be told, I wasn't sure I was going to keep her. I'm like, man, she might need to go back. So I don't know if I want to print this collar off for her because why even give her a name yet? She might go back. It might be returned to sender. But, but you know, I still have a soft spot for her, okay? So she, so she, Huskies are very energetic, man. Yeah, and so she tunneled under the fence and she ran and she got, she got almost 10 miles away. And the only reason we found her was because she was microchipped. Oh and she was at a shelter God. seven and a half miles, miles away, away, microchipped. Yes. Uh, she like basically took a fucking Uber. So <laughs> that's what I was dealing with. And oh, oh, by the way, by the way, I know this is gonna make me sound this is gonna make me sound really bad. So please don't judge me. But this was the third time in six weeks that she's escaped. 
Oh, and my I know God. that sounds bad. But she keeps doing new tricks. The first one, she jumped five and a half feet over a wooden fence. Damn. The second one, she sprinted out the door. And the third one, she tunneled under. So I keep trying to block it and prevent it. But I'm she keeps doing new shit. Oh, my yep. God. That is nuts, man. I, I'm telling you, my uh, brother-in-law had a husky. And he would always say that, how that dog was freaking crazy as all yeah. hell. And can... He called him uh, Harry Houdini because he just found ways of escaping all the damn time. And I was just like, damn, okay, well. I didn't, I have one Husky who, now that I think about it, I think, and I'm not saying this facetiously, I, I think that he, ha- I think he's autistic. He, <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> I think he has special needs because he doesn't behave like a normal Husky. He doesn't even, okay. he almost doesn't even respond to stimulus. He kind of just, it's, it's like he's constantly high he doesn't even really react to things so i i kind of thought i was going to get a second one of those that's not uh, what this was uh wow second one so anyway that's that's what happened but thank you for coming for coming on here oh no please thanks for having me this this is interesting because oh boy we met in 2017 and we met through uh tom to tom bill you at his show and this was when i was back in la and <laughs> Man, um, you always crack me up, man. Every time I saw you, you had some sort of like hilarious story or I'll be watching <laughs> your stuff online and you have a, such an amazing sense of humor. But then I, I was looking at your bio. I'm like, oh, wow, you've actually done a lot of serious work. <laughs> <laughs> you've built up a lot of shows, uh-huh. you know, because we're always just shooting the shit. I'm like, oh, yeah, he does the booking for Tom because you were doing all you, were ba- you basically helped Tom build that show up, you know, yes. and and then when I was looking into your credentials, I'm like, oh, he's actually done quite a few things. Uh, give us the, give us the, your LinkedIn. Yeah, which, sure. What are the books? Um, so I basically went to school for journalism uh, at Emerson College. At Emerson College. Um, nice. Okay. Yeah, it's a film, Where's TV. That? It's in Boston. Yeah. In Boston? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. Boston's I guess yeah, Boston. Um, yeah, which is funny because I graduated. It's amazing I mean, in the I, summer. <laughs> say it again. It's amazing in the, su- in the summer. It's amazing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Boston is amazing in the summer, but freezing cold during the winter. Yeah. So I did my freezing cold there. Yeah. And I just uh, pretty much. You ever find yourself in Boston and think, how did the pilgrims make it? <laughs> Man, I don't know how anybody makes it in Boston. I don't know how New Edition made it. I don't know how you New Edition the Block made it. <laughs> how you know? Imagine before before an air conditioned, heated room when you had to just you know survive with fire and some sort of animal skin out there. <laughs> oh no! Oh no! No no! It's too cold. Yeah. Oh man, and I suffered. I suffered as a student, but which but it made me a great student because I was not going outside. And since it was, the school was a journalism school. Yeah, I, I focused, I, I wrote a lot, and I knew that I wanted to come out to L.A. eventually. 90% of the graduates would go to L.A. anyways, but I wanted to come out to L.A. because my idea was to be a music journalist. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to do a music, you know, a focus in journalism on music. Like um, Rolling Stone? Yes. Yes. I was upset. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah. So my first job was at CNN. And right away, I would say maybe about a month in, I realized I don't want to do this. You know, this isn't for me. I don't want to do music. CNN in Atlanta? Actually, no, here in L.A. at the at the center. Yeah. Oh, okay. 
Yeah, right on sunset. Yeah. So, you know, every once in a while, uh, you know, they would send this to the headquarters in Atlanta. But, you know, I did the one um, over here on sunset. And yeah, and I just kind of had an idea that it wasn't going to work for me doing the music journalism thing because they they had such a hard focus on on hard news. Uh, which is funny to say that about CNN, mm. but that's just pretty much where the focus right <laughs> Not nowadays. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, it's funny you say that. What I think changed the dynamic of news for me, and this is why I segued into a different part of my career, was when September 11th happened. CNN and Fox News always competed already before that, but when that happened, that competition went into overdrive, and suddenly news became sensationalism, and that's when I really. Oh, I got to get out of here. I can't do news anymore. This isn't working for me. Yeah. I remember um, taking a tour of CNN when I lived in Atlanta at their headquarters. And something really bothered me that stuck with me to this day. And it was that as I was taking the tour, I walked past the desk. And I remember the guide saying something to the effect of, this is the fact checker desk. When something comes across this desk, we decide whether it's true or false. And then it goes in the news or it goes away. She said something to that effect. I'm paraphrasing her. But... That just struck me as a huge blinking weak point in the assessment of the news. And I could yeah. never get over that, that the people, and there were like three people at the desk. And I was like, these are the people who are deciding what what I get to hear? Hmm, I don't know. Who are they? <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah, right? And they're like, this person over here? Yeah, that's I remember crazy. that. Yeah, that's actually a crazy yeah. thought. And, it's, and it is kind of true because... <laughs> I remember the fact checking, and I would think that's the fact checking because you're basically well, determining. Yeah, who are that? You know, and, and but then I was joking with my wife today, and I was like, because I, I put out a, on Fridays, I put out a, like a weekly bulletin where I'll read some of the top headlines in business and crypto, and you know, I'll just give some commentary. And uh, I said, I, it's chilling to think that I'm going to be the source of somebody's news for the day, and I'm going to give them their weekly headlines. Like I, like I can determine what's important for them in their lives. But that's how it is. It's just an yeah. opinion of me picking what I think. Oh, here, here's something interesting. Here's mm -hmm. something. And people will listen and you follow. Know? That's the thing. That's the crazy thing. People, any type of medium, any type of mass, just like I'm doing. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they hear it and they listen. So there is a bit of responsibility and care or an irresponsibility or just, hey, I don't care because uh, the thing is people are going to listen anyway, regardless. <laughs> that's why you left journalism. Yeah, that's why I left journalism. So basically I decided, OK, I'm going to leave journalism. I got an opportunity to go start up uh, a show at PBS hosted by Tavis Smiley. At the time, I was very aware of Tavis Smiley. Nice. I used to watch him on BET. Uh, BET Talk was the show, and I used to listen to him on NPR. And I was graced with the opportunity to actually go and work for him. And this happened because I was just at a party. I was at the right place at the right time. And I'll never forget, I was playing music. It was me and a group of uh, people just uh, at my friend's house. Uh, she, she was uh, Carrie Fisher's uh, personal assistant, executive assistant. So she knew a lot of people through Carrie Fisher. And, you know, whether people that she's working with or whatever. Yeah. So she always had a cool collection of people there. And one guy was there and I'm, I'll never forget, we were playing Bad Moon Rising uh, by uh, CCR. And I was on the guitar. He was on the drums. Another dude was on the bass. And I, I, I don't even remember who was singing. But while we were playing, he looks over at me and he's just like, hey, man, I hear you work at CNN. And I was like, yeah, I do work at CNN. <laughs> He was just like, do you like it? I was like, nah, I'm kind of over it. He goes, hey, do you know what Tavis Smiley is? And I said, yeah, I know who he is. And he goes, well, we're trying to get, we're going to shoot a, we just shot a pilot, but we're trying to get our show sold. And it looks like PBS is going to take it on and they're going to get funding for us. And essentially, it's just going to be what Tavis is known for doing interviews. But the, the goal is to have a mix of 
uh, political pundits, politicians, authors, documentarians, and then celebs. So, you know, I'm looking for people from all facets of news because I think uh, that's going to help us get this show off the ground and wanted to know if you want to come over. And I said, yeah, man, someone over. And that actually was the beginning of the new phase of my career. And it kind of set the tone because when I went over there initially, it was strictly to do uh, documentarians and authors. That's all I was booking and producing because I booked and produced. But I went over there and I realized, oh, this is my segue into music. And it took a friend of mine to, to, to basically tell me and say, hey, you should create. Use your resources. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And that's, I, I remember deciding, okay, how am I going to do this? What can I do? How can I break into having a music segment for this show? Because this was in 2003 when that show started. And a lot of people forget that in 2003, there wasn't much music out there because uh, YouTube wasn't around yet, right? So people weren't getting their music fixed from there. MTV had stopped showing music videos. Yep. BT definitely stopped showing music videos. Uh, there was Leno and there was Letterman, who did music at the end of the show, but there was only there were a lot of genres they didn't do, right? And then It was Kimmel, a drought, for yeah, sure. Yeah, it was <laughs> a drought. And Kimmel was still on Comedy Central, so, you know, they, they weren't doing much. So... I figured, okay, this is my chance. We were technically late night because we aired at 11 p.m. I said, this is my chance to break in, but I can't compete with Leno and Letterman. What can I do? And my first thought was, I went for the typical. I said, okay, well, Tavis is black, so maybe this is my What was the viewership like of that show in the beginning? In the beginning, it it was not too large. We were in about... 65% 65% of the market, which means for people who are listening who don't understand that, that means that you're not in every city. You're not on every PBS channel. You're in the major cities. Right. Some major cities were holding out, but you were just in the major cities. But PBS across the nation, not everyone was seeing you nationally. But so, and when you're, and when you're not in 100% of the market, then uh, it's, it's, it's harder, especially for TV, to get the ideal guests that you want, because that's what they want to know. Like, well, who's going to see this? Um, is my client wasting their time coming on your show if you're in a weird time slot and you're only in 60% of the market? So we knew eventually that we would get to 100%, but we needed to work at it, right? And we needed to make our show a little different. And it was already different because, this, like, mind you, this was before podcasts. So this was the first show in a long time. You tried Charlie Rose, which was also on PBS, where you had long-form intelligent conversation. Right. Charlie Rose was already doing it, but this was a different flavor. So it it was lightning in a jar this moment to take advantage of. And which is why I decided, okay, to hear out my friend and create a music segment. And I went for the easy flag by saying, okay, you know, you don't see too many black artists on TV. Let's go there. But then I realized, okay, we are still. (laughs) Yeah. You reach for the easiest, the closest shelf to you. And said, yeah. oh, this yeah. this one, yeah. <laughs> you don't see a lot of black people on TV. How much for that one? <laughs> yeah, I'm not even going to reach for I'm just going to grab right here. Here you go. Boop. Yeah. So, and I figured, I was like, you know what? Now, nah, Tavis is not going to want to really do hip hoppers or he's not going to want to pigeonhole himself <laughs> into a category. I said, well, what sure, should I sure. do? Yeah. And then I, I sat up one night and I thought about it. I said, you know what? I know what I'm going to do. Me, to this day, I listen to all types of music in all, uh, you know, all eras, but I still, for the most part, listen to music from the 60s and the 70s. That's just me, for the most part. And I always feel bad. Old soul. Yeah, old soul. That's, I'm telling you, man, I always go for it. Always. Naturally. 
And I always feel bad for any of these folks. If you go to an average concert, right, you know what happens if you go to a, you know, say you go to a Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young concert, right? And they're playing all their hits. And then there's always that point in their concert where they say, um, hey, so this is a song from our new album. Uh, we really worked hard on this. We hope you guys like this. <laughs> what do people do? They get up and go to the bathroom. Yeah. It's just like, I'm not staying around for that. Yeah, yeah. Look, and I do it too. I get up and go to the bathroom. So I always felt bad. I was like, damn, who hears their new music? Because people aren't listening at it, listening to it at the concert, and they're damn sure not listening to it on the radio because it's not getting played on the radio. There's classic rock, classic soul. That's true. But they're not playing, oh, new music from classic artists. You know, I'm not listening to that. So I figured, I was That's like, true. okay, look, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to get these folks on the show because they have nowhere to go. And that's how I'm going to market it. So I called up all the labels blindly because I didn't know anybody at the time. And I just said, hey, having a music segment on this show with Tavis Smiley, it's uh, the audience is a very educated money buying audience. I mean, they have a lot of money, a lot of capital. Uh, so wondering if your legacy artists need a place to come. And they were really excited about it. And they started coming. They started coming to the show. Yeah, that's a good play. Yeah. Yeah. And you know what else it did, which, which I didn't realize I, this I didn't see coming because basically all these people. All these current musicians idolize these classic music. They go nuts for them. Right. Yeah. Right, so right, they started right, seeing right. the show. Unintended like, oh, good consequences. Yeah, oh my God. That's that's a memoir title right there. <laughs> yeah. I didn't see yes. good consequences. Yeah. Yeah. I may have to steal that. Yeah. Um, yeah. So Take they it. started coming to the show. And suddenly it went from just being legacy acts to all of a sudden all the current and hot artists and then new artists. Nice. And then the cool thing about that show is we were breaking artists that hadn't been broken. I was there for 10 seasons and I could go down a list of people who are huge now who got their first national interview on our show because people weren't interviewing musicians. And then one of their first performances, if not their first performance on our show, you know, even Kanye before College Dropout came out. I don't know. Are you watching the documentary on Netflix by any chance? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah. I'm being triggered by that because I remember when Kanye first came out, they they pitched him and basically said, hey, you know, is Kanye West a producer? And we're thinking, OK, whatever. Um, but he has a, a, a debut album coming out. It's going to be the next best thing. He's a very charismatic guy. He's very passionate about it. So we were open to it and he came on. And uh, this is before the album came out. And I remember thinking, who's this guy I think he is? Because he kind of had an ego about him. Uh, but then the album dropped. and. <laughs> I mean, and it all made sense. It's like, okay, okay. So it's funny to see that documented. And there's even a part in part two of the Netflix series where you see when they say, oh, the album came out and you started getting interviews and this and that. And you see the set of Tavis Smiley. They they show two shots. They show the set. I was like, oh, shit. And then they go to uh, a shot of him talking to Tavis. So it was cool to be a part of that history. But there was a lot of that at the show. A lot of that. Did you get did you, did you to meet Kanye? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I met him then. And then yeah. I had him on again on Arsenio, uh, the reboot years later. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. That's great. Met. What was that like? It was, well, the first time I, I definitely had the who does that guy think he is kind of attitude. Because when he was talking, he was sure of himself. But uh, so we, we basically, on Tavis, we would take several guests in one day, right? And they would spread them out, spread them out throughout the week. It just so happened the day that Kanye was on, we had Prince on. And Prince was in the green room. And Kanye got wind of it. Yeah. Kanye got wind of it. It's like, hey, can I say hi to him? And I remember our poor stage manager came to us and said, hey, Kanye wants to say hi to Prince. Ooh. You know, and I, you know, Prince is very particular. So I figured that wasn't going to be. How'd you get, I'm surprised you got Prince out there. Prince hardly did anything. 
Yeah. Okay. So I've worked with Prince three times. Uh, the first time I, God, I'm going to be honest. I can't fully take credit for booking Prince all three times. I booked him. Uh, so the first time happened because he just went out there on a limb and told Tavis he wanted to come on the show and he came on the show. The second time I techni- the second time I booked him and the third time was on another show, it was on Arsenio I booked him. But the reason I always say I can never take credit for it is because Prince, in full Prince fashion, always had a way of finding you or booking himself. You know, he would I would literally be sitting around. For example, the second time I remember sitting in my office. Just sitting there, and it was about 5 p.m., and I was getting ready to go home. I was daydreaming, literally daydreaming, about to go home. And I get a call, and they uh, people in this camp, they never called him Prince. They called him P. And I get a call, and she said, hey, so P <laughs> wants to know. And you always know you're talking to a Prince person because they all talk in this stoic voice, you know? I like to call it the stoic black accent, you know, that that Sydney Poitier <laughs> had, you know, to the point where Sydney Poitier. Oh, that um, one. Yes, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah, Tita Turner, friggin' Cicely Tyson, Whitney yeah. Houston did it even, you know. So everyone yeah. around Prince, they all talk in this in this voice. And so they're like, P wants to come on the show tomorrow. And I said, tomorrow. Jada Pinkett has that one. Jada Pinkett does it now. Oh, my God, that's so true. That is true. And her mom. Yes. Oh, my God. Adding her to the stuff. Righteous. Yes, righteous. Sydney Poitois. Not even Sydney Poitier. Sydney Poitois. <laughs> so, yeah. So, yeah. So Prince uh, basically came on that way that he just kind of invited himself on. We had to make time because I had someone the next day and I said, just give me so a second. So Prince calls you and says, I'm going to come on now. Yes. That's literally how it happened the second time. The third time, same thing. I remember the third time I was on Arsenio and everyone knew that I had worked <laughs> with Prince twice. And Prince had a way of, the second time I worked with him, he would have someone email his email. He never, it was never verbatim. It was always someone had to email his email. And he would have his guy email his email and said, hey, Prince wants you to see this email. And I remember the first time I got it, I was like, this isn't meant for me because it was it went to me. And then some other person say his name was Jeff. I had no idea. Some other email on there. Prince wanted you guys to have this. I said, OK. And I'm looking through it. And it's just it's like it's a weird numbering system. And they even said, don't pay attention to the numbering system. Just read in order. I said, OK. <laughs> And it's number one. <laughs> you got to give yourself to love and life. That's where you find success. And it was like number four. If you give yourself to Jehovah, this and that, blah, blah, blah. And then the next one, C. And I'm like, wait, what? Always oh, a JW. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and, and then you know, and then you knew it was him too, because if he said something like, I'm going to the movies, two as a preposition was the number two, you know? I, instead of I'm, right. I apostrophe M, it was E-Y-E apostrophe M. He just wrote a weird code. Oh, code-like. my God. Yeah, and I remember I was on my way to Ojai, and I just started dating uh, <laughs> my then-girlfriend, my now-wife. I just started dating her. And I get this email, and I said, hey, so I got this email from Prince's <laughs> folk, and they basically said he wanted me to have it. But there's this other guy on there. I'm thinking that they went to type this other guy in who needed this, and they went to type in... Maybe another Christopher, another Chris. Hey, maybe Christ. Who knows? They went to type in C-H-R-I-S-T and it auto-corrected or auto-filled my name. So I'm getting this personal note from Brent and it's not meant for me. Should I tell her or should I just let it lie? She was not. No, no, just tell her because it, in case this other Christopher or, or whoever or Christ needs it, just literally just, just tell her. <laughs> so I told her, I said, hey, that letter, that email that you meant for Prince, that came to me. 
Uh, so I just wanted you to know so this other person can get it. And she goes, no, 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 Prince meant that for you. And I said, okay. So what was it? It was just musings. It was just, just a poem? Just, it was just music? Like, just musings, musings about life and what you should feel and how you should enjoy your life and live it to the fullest. And I would often get- You should frame things. that, man. I'm telling you, it's in a box somewhere because I did print it out. That if one Prince sent me an email, I would frame that thing. I know. In retrospect, I wish I saved more of them because other things would be like, hey, Prince is looking for Bishop Noel Jones. You have an, a contact to that. I'm like, uh, yeah, I can connect them. Stuff like that, right? So when I fast forward to a few years later, when I was on Arsenio, uh, the, you know, the folks knew that I'd worked with Prince before. So they kept threatening my job saying, hey, man, we don't think you're booking as well as you should be booking. And I'm like, wait, what? I have some of the hottest people in music on TV, right? They're like, yeah, man, but we need Prince. We need Gaga. Where's Prince? You've worked with him. How, why can't we get him? And I remember saying, telling them, OK, let me tell you something about Prince. Um, he kind of books himself. He doesn't. Trust me, if you keep asking him to do things. He doesn't respond to, to Yeah, he doesn't you. respond. Yeah. yeah. And I feel like it's out of intention. He's just like, look, I'm not going to do something for the sake of doing it. I I need to do it when I want to do it. And that's just how it was. And and again, like he would always just pop up like a leprechaun. I never, anytime I would reach out to his camp, they'll just ignore me. But when, when he was ready to pop up, he would. I mean, here's a prime example of him popping up, <laughs> booking aside. Uh, we, so I, I had booked our, and I'm sorry, I had booked Eddie Murphy on the Arsenio Hall show, which it sounds crazy because that's his best friend that I had to book him. But I did. I booked him on the show. And I, I swear to God, I only told Arsenio and I only told our showrunner. And then maybe the other bookers found out, right? Within the hour, I get a call from, and it's always a different person with Prince. A lot of times it was this woman, Sharon, and another time it was this guy, Theo, who was her chief of staff, his chief of staff. But there's one point, this one person called who I had never even heard of and said, hey, he wants to know who the music guest is for your uh, Eddie Murphy episode. And I was like, wait, wait, what? How did he find out that Eddie Murphy's coming? I he can just take it. over. He can just take over the slot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? And I was excited thinking, man, that's going to be a good show. Eddie and Prince, that's going to be amazing. And I went and told Arsenio, hey, man, Prince wants to be the music guest for Eddie's episode. And Arsenio goes, ooh, I don't think that's going to fly. I'm like, what do you mean? He goes, I know Eddie, and he's not going to want to share that time with Prince. And I was like, wait, what? No one's going to care. That's going to be the show of the century. Eddie Murphy and Prince? Let's go. But we ended up not doing it. And I had to go back and tell Prince, hey, man, we can't do that show. But hey, do you want to do next week? And of course, he just disappeared. Disappeared. <laughs> but then he eventually showed up again. <laughs> One day I was driving to work and I never answer a, a block call. To this day, I won't answer a block call. And for whatever reason, that morning, I get a block call and I think, I got to answer this. I, I just, something tells me, and I answered it, and sure enough, I just heard this voice. I heard Christopher in that stoic Jada Pinkett <laughs> <Sydney Plotway> voice, <laughs> Christopher. And I had never spoken to this person yet, and this ended up being Theo. And I said yes, and I just knew that voice. I said, "Oh, it's happening! It's happening!" And I said yes, and he goes, "He's ready." They called me. They called me. <laughs> he said, "He's ready for you." And I said, "Oh my God!" And he goes, "Yeah," but he goes. Oh. <laughs> And he goes, but there are some parameters. I said, oh, okay, okay, well, okay, tell me what are the parameters? He goes, he wants to come on next week and next week only. I said, oh, okay, I'll try to knock someone out. We were kind of full, but I'll get back to you on that. He's like, I need to know within the hours. I'm on my way to work. I'll clear your schedule. Yeah, yeah, clear the schedule. And I said, what else? And he goes, 
uh, he wants it uh, to be a surprise to Arsenio. I said, ooh, we're going to need to promote this. So that might be a problem with the show because we just can't <laughs> have people missing Prince, right? We need to promote that. Uh, I don't think Prince wants it. I said, okay, I'll get back to you on that one too. And he goes, I said, what's the other one? He goes, um, he wants to announce uh, an artist takeover. So basically he wants the entire one hour. He wants the entire show and he wants to showcase some of his new acts. And he wants to do an interview and he wants to sing all the songs. And one of the songs goes to the new act. And I was just like, oh my God, that is a tall order. Give me your whole show. Yeah, right. Give me your whole show. Give me everything. And I was just like, oh my God, freaking (laughs) Prince. So I go in and first and foremost, I had to look at the calendar and in my uh, executive producer's office, there's a giant wall with a giant calendar that goes out to basically six months. And I looked at next week, hoping, please have space, please. Because I couldn't remember offhand. And I looked and there was space. And I just started laughing. And my executive producer goes, wait, what are you laughing at? I was like, oh, my God, thank God. And he goes, wait, what is it? Thank God about what? What are you talking about? I said, friends wants to come next week. He's like, wait, what? What? Oh, my God, he does. I was like, yeah, but he has some parameters. Parameters. What is it? It's not funny. <laughs> Anything. I said, okay, he wants to be an artist takeover where he does the entire hour. He's like, oh, okay, cool, whatever. Yeah, okay, as long as he wants to play and have fun. I was like, okay, we'll get to that. He goes, what else? What else? I said, he doesn't want to play. He's surprised. And he goes, oh, no, 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 no. We can't do that. We can't do that. I was like, mm, it's the only way. That's the only way he's going to do it. He's like, okay, well, let's, let's get creative. What can we do to make it a surprise? Can he at least meet us halfway? Can we, can we announce it? Can we surprise Arsenio? somehow you know four days before and he came up with some idea how are you gonna do an artist takeover without telling arsenio first that's fucked up man yeah right arsenio be like who's coming today or he just might guess it right or he may be like it better not be carrot top but he just he basically (laughs) (laughs) so we came to the conclusion that okay let's ask if prince can meet us halfway and we surprise arsenio four days before right and so I go and I hit back Theo and I said, hey, we can do this. We can do this. We can do that. However, the we want to be able to promote it. It's important because otherwise people are going to miss the show. We want people to see Prince's takeover. And he goes, OK, I'll go back to P and ask him. So he comes back and goes, OK, here's Prince's P's compromise. And I said, OK, what is it? He goes, and this is where it gets so weird. He goes, <laughs> so P's really excited about this. And so he has an idea of how we will do the surprise. So what we're going to do is we're going to get this young uh, girl. Her name is, I think her name is Jessica. I forget her name. But she goes, it's the young woman who's in Prince's and P's Breakfast Can Wait video. She is going to show up and she is going to crash Arsenio's monologue, one of the shows. And she's going to arrive and walk on the stage dressed as me. And again, he's sending me Prince's email. He's going to come on. She's going to come on and she's going to be dressed as me. You are to have. As Prince. SP. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I said, wait, what? Okay. And she goes, yeah. And he goes, you are to have this following note. And he listed this note. Hello, Arsenio. Uh, I know it's been a while since we've last seen each other. And I'm really excited about doing your show. And so much so, I'm going to do a takeover. How about that? And he goes, you are going to take that personal note and you're going to put it on purple stock. And then that purple stock fo- uh, envelope... I mean, that purple stock letter has to go into a purple stock envelope of a different purple persuasion. It cannot be the same. And I was just like, what is happening? I was like, okay. Yeah. What? Thank God my showrunner agreed to it. 
And I remember the night before we taped that surprise episode where this girl showed up dressed as Prince, I panicked and started thinking, oh my God, what if, I be, what if I'm being pranked? I didn't talk to Prince. I only saw his emails. <laughs> and someone's going to show up show, dressed up as Prince? I said, what if I'm being pranked? And I, I, was, I started being convinced I'm getting pranked. I'm getting cool. So I remember I was so nervous all morning waiting for us to start taping the show. And I walk in the green room. Someone tells me, my assistant goes, oh, your guest is here. I said, okay. Is she dressed like Prince? Yeah, she's actually dressed like Prince. I said, okay. So I go into the green room and there's this young woman sitting there on the couch dressed like Prince from Purple Rain era Prince. A white woman or a black woman? She's actually, I want to say... Okay, so you know how Prince has a type, Apollonia, Vanity, they're all the light skin. Sure, sure, sure. With some, you know, they got some Cherokee in their blood. Uh-huh. That's, that's what she looked like. Uh-huh. Prince, def- that's the type. Brother, they're always that type. Yeah. <laughs> so she was that. So I don't know they what They look she like, was. yeah. Mocha. Yeah. So she's sitting there. Okay. Dressed just like Prince. And she looks over. And I say, hey, I think her name was Danielle. I said, hey, Danielle. I got this nagging feeling that really made me paranoid last night. Is Prince really coming to the show? Do you know him? And she goes, I can assure you he's coming tonight. <laughs> I said, okay. And I looked at the Breakfast Can't Wait video and it looked like her, but the makeup was better in the video. This just looked like she showed up and put on a yeah, Prince yeah, yeah. friggin' ruffled shirt and, and a purple jacket. So it wasn't the same. <laughs> so I didn't know if it was her. I said, it looks like The her. quality wasn't as high, yes. <laughs> And then I said, okay. And she goes, do you have the letter for me that I'm to deliver to Arsenio? And again, she's talking the talk also. I said, okay, yeah. So I give it to her. And she walks up on stage during Arsenio's monologue. Oh, and by the way, Prince's instructions, explicit instructions. She may not speak. She only can hand the envelope of purple stock to Arsenio. She can only react, smile, or blush. I swear to God, explicit so, so did Ars- so Arsenio knew that she was coming? He didn't. So that was the surprise. He was reading his monologue, and this woman okay. walks out just like Prince. <laughs> and he goes, uh, as you can see the look at his face, like, what is happening? And then he hand- she hands him this envelope, and he goes, huh. And he opens it, and he starts reading it. And he's just kind of giggling nervously, thinking what's happening, but kind of figuring out where this might be going. And he reads it, and he hears that Prince is coming and going to do an artist takeover and everything. And he starts asking this girl stuff, like, is this for real? Is this really happening? And she goes, mm-hmm. And uh, so Prince will be here for sure. I mean, so you, you guys aren't playing with me, are you? And she goes, and then everything she says, she smiles, right? And he, I guess he asked one question too many that she forgot her rules. And she goes, yes, answered one of his questions and you can see immediately she goes like that like oh my god i was told not to speak i was only to react blush and smile and i'm thinking oh my god she's freaking out so she gets backstage and she goes can you edit out the part where i talk (laughs) and i said uh yeah i'm sure but yeah whatever she goes i wasn't supposed to talk i was not supposed to talk (laughs) i said damn Chris got you living in fear i was like okay we'll make sure wow and we did, and sure enough, later, uh, the Jehovah, Jehovah's Witnesses and the and the and the the black Muslims in the same group. I, I, right, I'm telling you, like, the ass beat over there. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Jeez. And then what transpired in the next four days probably gave me an ulcer because Prince put me through the ringer. He is very, very particular. He's very hands-on. He's a perfectionist. He knows what he wants. 
Um, he likes to deal with a person and then eventually connect his people. Until we got all this stuff right, no one else was looped in. You know, he, he was talking about the lighting plan. I was like, can I light in my light, you know, loop in my lighting director? We'll get to that. You know, he was talking and he kept changing themes. He goes, I want it to be a roaring 20s theme, the Harlem Renaissance. Okay, cool. Uh, can you send me, you know, you know, the ideation and this and that, and we'll see what we can rent. And then he changed it. I want it to be like Aladdin, magic carpet, this and that. Okay. Well, three, <laughs> you know, we're getting really close. I want it to be, and he kept changing it. And I'll never forget the night before he changed it to a Moroccan theme. And I said, ah, oh my God, oh, no. this is going to work, right? And then he added a, a, a high school marching band, you know, of 20 something people. And he already had a big band. And suddenly, what? yeah. And my executive in charge of production was stressed and said, hey, man, I need to talk to you. Who's paying for this performance? And I said, I thought we had a budget for this. I thought we were going to pay for that because we all wanted prints. And he goes, I get it. But can he help us out? Can he pay for some of it? Because we're at now with all this stuff that he wants to do, we're at 130K. And that's way over budget. And I was like, 130K? And he's like, yeah. He's like, can you ask him if he can pay for some of it? I was like, oh, God, I can't. That sounds greedy. And I was embarrassed. And I went back to the staff. And I was like, asking Prince to pay. Yeah, for his own <laughs> performance. I'm like, damn it, man. So I went back no. to the chief of staff and I said, hey, uh, and I presented the problem. And he goes, how much is it? I said, it's about 128K. And then he came back about five minutes later and goes, he said he'll, he'll pay for all of it. <laughs> I said, what? <laughs> yeah, he'll pay for everything. And I was like, damn. What? But that's the thing. You know, he had control of all his music after his emancipation. And, and he was ahead yeah, of the yeah. curve where he started. He was, people forget this. He was the, if not, yeah. probably, I think, and I may be wrong, at least notable person to sell his own music online. Like he literally put mm -hmm. up a website and you couldn't get his music anywhere but for him. So every dollar went to him. So he was making so much money off yep. his music. And he was, you know, and he was way, he was way ahead of the curve, way ahead of the curve. So, so he had a lot of money. He had the capital. That's why he renamed himself. Yeah, that's right. And that was that's in the nineties. Right. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah. And, and then he put slave. He's like, Oh, you don't, you don't. Uh... Yeah. And then, yeah. And then, that was such a, if there was Instagram back then, it would have been so great because oh, he could yeah. have trolled <laughs> the label so bad, you know, just that, the fact that you could think of the artist formerly known as Prince the fact that it's not Prince, but it's the artist formerly known as, is so hilarious and would have been great online. Man, that is petty, beyond petty, and amazing. So and, petty. Yeah. So petty. Yeah, and I love that. It's so funny. I don't think I understood the magnitude of how amazing that was when I was younger. And I remember getting older and thinking, wow, that was amazing. He's like, Balls, oh, he's man. Balls. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, I feel like Prince is so intimidating, yet he's such a slight figure. Oh, oh my God. He is so intimidating. Oh my God. And when he stares at you, he does not blink. I kid you not. Everything that Dave Chappelle talks about and makes fun of, it is so true. And I think he knows this. You know, I think he knows that he has this way about him that he just would just stare at you. And I swear to God, he doesn't blink. And there's just this very intimidating nature about him. And he just kind of makes you do what he says. And in fact, the day that he came in, he <laughs> the game plan. And I remember thinking, I'm going to take a stand. He's put me through the ringer. I got my entire staff mad. <laughs> take a stand. And stuff. Yeah. And I'm going to take a stand because I know he's going to come up with some shit. He's going to come up with something new today. And I'm going to take a stand. So sure enough. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I bet. 
Yeah. So the assigned producer was this uh, this producer who I've known for a while. I actually worked with her prior on uh, Tavis Smiley. She was also at Arsenio. And she had went in to greet him. She had gone in to greet him. And she told me, she goes, hey, uh, he wants to ask you a question. He has something he wants to change. I said, okay. So I went in there. And Prince always called you sir. He never called you by his name, by your name. He'd be like, sir, sir. So I have this idea for my first number and how I want to have myself revealed. I need it to be a reveal. I said, okay. Um, like, what are you thinking? Like a curtain? A what? Like a reveal. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah. And I said, what are you thinking? Are you thinking like a curtain? You know, like, what, what, what are we thinking? A fog machine? I'm trying to think of what's easy. I'm throwing out my ideas because I know we have a fog machine back there. I know we got this, this, and that, blah, <laughs> blah. And then he says something that literally made me, made my knees buckle. Because mind you, we're about two hours, no, we're about an hour from starting the tape. And we got an audience waiting outside to be loaded in. And he goes, um, I want to be standing in the stage, on the stage, when the curtains open. And I want a purple tornado to be swirling around. And I'm thinking, I, I said, wait, wait what? A, a, what'd you say? He goes, um, sir, a purple tornado to be swirling around me. And then it just swirls up. And uh, reveals me. And this is the moment where I said, okay, this is where I take a stand. Because A, we're in I to take a stand at this point. Yeah, I'll take a stand. And then B, how the hell are we going to make a purple tornado? Is he joking with me? So I told him, I said, uh, you know what? We're about an hour from loading in the audience. I feel that we've compromised with all the changes. And uh, right now, there really isn't a sufficient amount of time to do this. So I, I can't make it work. And then I see him just... Look over at Theo, his chief of staff, and look over at whoever else was in there. And, I, they go, oh. and then I just decided, okay, like, so I'll come back if you guys need anything. And I walked away and I left and he came running after me. And then he goes, um, but Theo came running after me. He goes, um, you don't, you don't, you don't say no to Prince. I'm like, I, I, I get it. I know. I know. I, but <laughs> how am I going to make it? You broke the rules. Yeah, exactly. Right? Yeah, you broke the booking contract. And I remember thinking, how am I going to make a tornado? I'm, it's just not going to work. And then he goes, you're just going to have to figure it out. And I said, okay. So I go to, thank God we had an amazing team of prop masters and so on. And I go to them and I'm like, guys, don't kill me. Prince wants to be, and I didn't want to go to my showrunner because he wanted to kill me at this point. I said, Prince has a new change. He wants to be, he wants to have a reveal. He wants a purple tornado. And they looked at each other. And I thought they were just going to laugh. But then they started sitting down and putting their minds together. I'm thinking, okay, 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 they're working on this. I don't know what they're going to do, but they're working on this. And one of them goes, okay, we can go to the prop house down the street over at uh, uh, so-and-so studio on, uh, I forget the name of it, but it's the one on uh, uh, Sunset and Gower. And he goes, um, I know they got some of this. What I could do is get like a, a, a tarp and we'll get a rig that they use for Cirque du Soleil where it's twirls and spins around and we'll, we'll put it up on the rafters and we'll have it spin and raise up i'm like oh okay good i hear you guys no need to explain it to me just great <laughs> don't tell me just do yeah, it just, please we're running out of time i don't know how he did it but within 20 minutes i see someone carrying this long velvet purple tarp and i'm thinking oh my god so he comes wow and he goes, oh. so i discovered this cirque du soleil twirling mortar that i talked about it's not going to work it's going to compromise the rafters that we have so we can't use this. It's just going to twirl and it's just not going to work. And I said, okay. And he goes, so what, what I'm going to do, and we'll, we'll, we'll run it by him, but I'm thinking we can just rig it to the rafter 
and we'll have Prince stand behind it and it'll just drop down and it will reveal him. I said, uh, it's not a purple tornado. He said, that's all I can do. I said, so I went in and I explained it to them. I said, look, I tried. I tried. Can we? And I explained what we were going to do. And he goes, I, I need to. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I know I was hiding. He was like, Ugh. And he goes, sorry. I need to see how it works. That's the only, uh, the only options. Okay. He comes out to the stage. We had to clear the stage. We had to clear the audience. I'm standing there with my uh, assistant, Cristeo, and then the talent coordinator, Brian. And we rig it. They have it rigged. And he goes, uh, and he goes, it's just going to drop. Uh, Prince, do you want to stand behind her so we can run the test? And he goes, no, um, I need someone else to stand in for me. I don't know how that's going to drop. And we said, okay, okay. And I said, hey, Brian, Brian, do you mind standing over there? And Brian, you know, he's my color, my height, and he's about to go over there. And he goes, <laughs> sir, sir, I need someone who's closer to my height. Cause it's, it just not, might not work. And I look over at Cristea, who is his color and who's his height. And no, she's actually taller, so, <laughs> but still short. So she goes over and stands behind the purple tarp. And then they start playing the beat. He goes, cue the music, whatever. And then they start playing it. Prince is standing behind me. I'm sitting in the audience section, sitting oh. down. So I'm one level below him. So I'm a little low and he's standing behind me. And the tarp drops on cue. And it just drapes over Cristeo. And she's like, uh-huh. and she throws it off. And we all start <laughs> dying laughing. And I'm cracking up. I'm like, <laughs> dying because it's her. <laughs> and I look at Prince when I turn around. And I swear to God, he's looking at me. I want to get the angle right. But he's like this. Just glaring at me. <laughs> and his look is basically saying, motherfucker, that would have been me. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, you know, he didn't even have to play. He gave me with daggers. And I said, okay, guys, can we do that again? Can we get that right? Because we want to fall on Prince. <laughs> and they had to do it a few times until they got it right. And they got it right. And then, you know, my at this point, oh, my children is pissed. Why isn't the audience loaded in? What are we doing? Why are we wasting everyone's damn time? <laughs> get it together. Get them ready. This night, he's screaming at me. And this is after Prince goes back to the green room, but he's screaming at me on stage. And at this point, I'd never scream back at my showrunner. I was pissed. I was like, you have no idea what I had to put up with this week. I had to do this 100% by myself, this and that, blah, blah, blah. And he kept changing it. You think I wanted him to change it? We're screaming at each other. And he's like, Chris, just fucking get it done. Get it going. And he walks away and storms off. And I'm like, ah! And I turn around and I look off to the side and I see one of Prince's, uh, I think he was one of the musicians, one of the musicians in his band. I swear to God, he looks at me and he goes, and I'm like, and then he goes, and I'm thinking, why did he just do that? And I go over and I say, what was that about? And he goes, oh, you think you got it hard. I deal with this shit 24 <laughs> seven. Just vocalize what you just did for someone, for anyone who's listening and didn't just see your face. Yeah, vocalize yeah. what you just did with your finger. Oh, so basically, I uh, he he said he first he did the shush hand to his mouth, which I thought was weird because I'm across the stage, and then I go over. I mean, before I go over, he turns the shush hand over and mimics putting the barrel in his mouth of a revolver and shooting, and then he cocked his head back, and I was like, "What? What was that?" So I had to go over and find out what was he doing, and he just said, "Hey, man, you think you got it bad? I deal with this shit twenty four seven." I mean, and it was crazy, but it ended up being that, a fantastic show. That, and, that matches everything I've ever heard about Prince, though. Oh yeah! Oh my God! And then, and, oh, and sorry. Not, and, and to put the fine point on this, 
The second time I'd worked, he did this the first time, but the second time I'd worked with him at Tavis, uh, one thing about Prince is he knows how to do Avid and Final Cut Pro and other editing things. And he also knows how to do the the soundboard and he, he knows how to do audio, audio, audio editing, everything. He is so technological advanced, technologically advanced, sorry. He knows all this stuff and software. So I knew that about him and I'd warned my sound mixer. I said, hey, it's going to be a long night. Uh, I, I can tell you this right now. And, and my sound mixer was the most cantankerous person. He never liked people in his sound truck, but I had to give him a warning. I said, you know how some people want to come in your sound truck afterwards and hear the mix and you don't want them to? Prince is going to want to do that. But not only that, he's going to want to mix the whole show, you know. And I remember he was excited. He goes, okay, great. That's great. And I said, okay, perfect. So that night after we shot the episode, we finished at eight. Me, Prince, and Peter Baird, who was the sound mixer, the three of us sat in the sound truck, in the audio truck, from around 9 p.m. The show wrapped at 8, from 9 p.m. to 5 a.m. in the morning. Oh, the three my of us God. sat in the sound truck. And literally wow. just that everything you heard about Prince and how amazing he is and how he can hear things. He was doing stuff that I was like, wait, what? And then even Peter, who was so adept at audio mixing, kept looking back thinking like how did you do that like wait or how did you hear that our prince like hey man can we do this let's do this with this sound change this and peter was doing it and prince goes do you mind sir do you mind peter would get up and prince would sit down and just be doing stuff and you know i don't get an audio board anyways but there's a lot of levers right and he's just doing stuff and then he sits back and then hits play and then we're like oh and it would just sound amazing one of the most amazing things that happened to me was there was a moment where in his song, Funk and Roll, which was uh, the second song he performed, he had uh, a horn section of about 12 people in his band. And then he had that high school band that I referenced earlier. So there you had about 20-something yeah, horns, yeah, yeah. right? And it was during the bridge of the song where it was just like horns going off, like all these horns going off. And everyone is, I mean, it just it's just a crescendo of horns. And we're sitting in the, in the truck, and then he goes, ooh, play that back. Someone missed a note. And Peter goes, wait, what are you talking about? He goes, let's isolate the channel. What? And I'm thinking, there's no way he heard a movie. <laughs> I, no isolate way. the channels. So he starts isolating the channel. It's like channel one, channel two, channel three. We get to about channel six. And it's like, and then you hear the guy, because his horn is mic'd. You hear him go, Oh. <laughs> and Prince goes, oh, he's moaning because he knows I'm going to dock his pay. Because Prince was like James Brown, that if they missed a note or did something, he would dock their pay. And I'm like, how did you what? hear this? It was crazy. The guy could hear the craziest things. And there was even a point where I fell asleep Holy in the sound truck. I fell asleep because it was getting around maybe 4 a.m. I was nodding off. And he hit my thigh and he goes... You still with us? You still with us? I was like, yeah, yeah, sorry. Oh, my God. This and then when that ended, he goes, oh, I'll see you tomorrow for the visual edit. I was like, the visual? And he goes, yeah, I'd like to come in and sit with your team to just see the visual edit. So he came in the next day, rolled in. Theo sat in the car outside. Prince came up the elevator by himself, which I thought was weird. Not that he can't walk by himself, but I th still thought it was weird. And I told him, I was like, I'll meet you by the elevator. And he was wearing this uh, purple and yellow velour tracksuit. And my first thought was, oh, he has a Lakers outfit. But then I forgot. I was like, oh, no, he's wearing the Vikings because he's from Minneapolis. So, and then he walks up in his velour tracksuit. I didn't tell anybody but our post supervisor, my EP, and, um, and my director that he was going to come and oversee the visual edit. 
because I didn't want staff to try to bombard him. So people would walk by and be like, hey, what's up, Chris? Yeah. And then just take a look at this little guy next to me, a kid who they thought yeah. see that it was oh, Prince. Oh, it was Prince. Yeah. <laughs> and you would just light up like, what's up, Chris? And Prince is just standing there and he's just, mm-hmm. and so he did the visual edit. He didn't stick around for too long. He just had to approve some things. So when he was say, he goes, okay, sir, I'm ready to go. I said, okay, good. So I walked into his car and this is the very last time I saw Prince. I walked into his car and he, this strange thing happened. He goes, he kind of mentioned something to Theo. He's like, and then Theo turns to me and he goes, um, Chris, um, who is uh, the director? Who was the director of uh, this show? I said, his name is Brian, Brian Campbell. And then he pulls a little black book out of this lapel. And then he just writes in the black book and then closes it and puts it back in. And I go, do you, do you want me to connect you? What was it? And he goes, no, that's all. That's all I need. I was like, okay. And um, they got in the car and they went to drive off. And then the car stopped. And then Prince popped out of the window, almost Morris Day style, pops out of the window. And he goes, Sir, sir. And I said, yeah. And he goes, I'll see you next time. We'll do this all again next Thursday. And then he smirked and went back in the car and drove off. And that was his way of apologizing for putting me through the ringer. You know, I thought that was such a cool moment. Like he just took the time to say, I'm going to mess with this guy one last time. And yeah. And I went upstairs and I was like, hey, Brian, just so you know, Prince whispered something in his guy's ear. He asked for your name and he wrote it in a little black book and tucked it away. I don't know what that means. I hope you survive. <laughs> I hope it's a good thing. What I think is so crazy is, is is how you still talk about Prince as if he's here because such a presence, you know, such a presence. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He is such a presence. And in fact, iconic. When away, yeah, when he passed away, I was actually, I was flattered. I was invited to his memorial service. They did one at Paisley Park. Oh, man. One here uh, in LA. I forget what theater, but it was a theater on Wilshire Boulevard. And Spike Lee was there and Tavis was invited and and it was put on by his ex-wife and his current wife. And they, um, yeah, I was invited. I was like, oh, okay, thanks. Thanks for having me, y'all. It's crazy. And then someone had mentioned because I was one of the few people Man. who booked him multiple times. And again, I never like to take credit for booking him because he always found me. And, and someone asked me once, why do you think that is that he would always find you? And, and to be honest, so in, music, in mainstream TV, they're, they're honestly, outside of BET and then, you know, some, now some of the vlogs is different. But back then, I was the only, the only black music booker. The only. And when Prince passed away, I remember there was this thing where everyone started talking about, you may not have known this, but Prince was very philanthropic. And he gave away a lot of his money to charities, which was true. But one thing that the mainstream media left out and I feel that they would have covered it differently now, post-2020. But back then, they didn't want to say this. He didn't just, not that he had anything against white people. It wasn't anything like that. But he was very pro-black. And mainstream media, for whatever yeah. reason, never liked to tell that story, right? Because they didn't want to radicalize him. Although, that's, that's interesting. Radical. Yeah. He was extremely pro-black. And he gave to black causes. And, uh, and he was all about that. So I think... Because I was the sole black music booker in, uh, for music and TV, mainstream TV, and it just so happened that I worked for black hosts in a sea of white hosts, he went out of his way to help and do those things. So he always found me that way. That's, I think it was just a coincidence in that sense. I think that's an interesting. Like, I think that there is something to, um, like, especially if you're trying to support a certain type of community, you have, so you, have to, you have to go out of your way sometimes to find the people that you want to support because yeah. it's not going to always be they're not going to be the easiest people to find. You have to look for them. But then 
you know, you build those relationships. And if you're talking music booking, he wants to work with someone that he knows is going to at least try to make a purple tornado for him. And he tried, <laughs> you know, he just wants to see that you gave it your all. <laughs> you know, he, pro- he probably has his own people let him down sometimes, but he wants to see that you will put it on the line. You know, you didn't say, I can't do it, sir. Sorry. You said, okay, I'll, I will see what I can do. You know, so oh, that's, that's respectable, man. That is amazing. Yeah. So well, it, it, do, you, do you think he's the most eccentric person you ever booked? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there have been some doozies, but by far, I would say him because it's almost it comically eccentric. It's, it's Dave Chappelle level eccentric. Yeah. And, you know, when Dave Chappelle, Dave Dave Chappelle everyone would say, was he really like that? That's crazy. This and I'm like, hell yeah, that and more. And he just he just knew what he wanted and he got what he demanded and he did, he strived for perfection uh, in all avenues. And, and then, you know, everyone was collateral, but in a good way, you know. So hands down, the most eccentric. And I've worked with some really eccentric people, especially when I when I mainly just did music. You were just bound to get eccentric. Um, but he definitely stood out. For sure. Yeah, I, th- I think some people play a character and I think that some people really are that thing. Yes. You know, they're different. Yes. We are not the same. Yes. Oh, my you know? God. I swear to God, he looked like a different species. Especially when it comes to Prince. Yeah. Well, <laughs> his musicianship, too. It's like, we're not the same. Like, he's mm-hmm. literally a genius in a mm-hmm. tiny, frail human body, a beautiful body, genius mind, you know, eccentric, multimillionaire. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's not the same crazy. as, you know, <laughs> totally different. Yeah. Yeah, right. And it's funny that you say frail because... A lot of people didn't know this either. He was, uh, I mean, because so, and, then, and surprisingly, they didn't talk about this too much, but they did when he passed away. Because a lot of people were surprised. They're like, wow, Prince was on opioids? They were all surprised, especially because he was very anti, you know, medicine and drugs and stuff like that. So everyone was surprised to hear yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and not that I knew that, although I had heard rumors, but I didn't really know that. But it made sense because the one thing I knew about him is that he was in a lot of pain. He had, um, he did have a small, frail body. He, when he came on Tavis the second time, he told me, he said, um, uh, this is what I'm going to talk about. Uh, and I'm also going to talk about things that I've never talked about, like my childhood and how I was always sick. You know, I was always sick and he always thought I was going to die. And he didn't get into to that contributing to his, his height, but I think it had a lot to do with it. He grew up a sick person. And then eventually all that dancing and jumping up on pianos and doing splits whether it was because he had a frail body or what, I have no idea. It took a number on his hip, and he actually had hip surgery. So when he, when I worked with him the second time, yeah, I heard that. Yeah, he'd gotten out of the car and he was limping, limping, and he was walking like an old person. And I remember thinking, "Oh man, this is going to look yeah. so sad." Thank God we preset uh, the guests, and they're sitting in a chair when he comes on. But let me tell you, when it was time to walk to stage, and it was just because it was just me who greeted him. But when it was time for him to walk the stage and there were other eyes on him, he put on a walk. He turned his he turned walk on. strut. Yeah. And oh, if you yeah. notice, he always kind of walked with a strut. But it made sense to me because I was like, man, this is an exaggerated strut. Yeah. He was but swinging I, his hip. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. So he was a yeah, friend. I know about that one. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's, it's sad. It's sad, you know, to see him, to see him going. What, what, one thing you were, you were, uh, you mentioned when you were talking about this. And I think it's interesting how the media, would, for instance, perhaps play down his uh, pro-blackness. And then in other cases, they play it up. So I've been doing a lot of study of, of Malcolm X and mm. how much they would, for instance, play up his violence when if you really read his stuff, I mean, yes, he he was more extreme than, than, than Martin, but at the same time, he wasn't really preaching indiscriminate violence. And yeah. so they really will turn up that radical element and they'll turn down Prince's radical element and they'll just kind of 
the media will will create whatever picture yeah. of someone that they want to want to create. Man, and, and Malcolm X, that's a perfect example because I remember, you know, uh, the education that the average education that the average American person gets, right? We got nothing. Yeah, right. And then I just I just remember drinking the Kool Aid and thinking for years that Malcolm X was he was rad. bad. Yeah, that he was bad. You know what I mean? That he was out to kill folks and he wanted no, to kill white people. No, and I believed no. it. I was like, oh, God, he was a scary person. You know what I mean? And then I I, I don't think it was until college until I read uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X. And, and I realized, like, damn, why did they lie to us in these history books? <laughs> they, first of all, they fucking lied to us. So I'll, I'll put for anyone who's watching this, doesn't matter white or black. This is essential reading. You know, you need oh, to, you oh, need to get is. this book. Wow. This, Malcolm is a man. This is a man. And th- and that's what they said at his funeral. They said, this is our manhood, our shining prince. This is, this is a real man. Race aside. Mm-hmm. Now, this is his story. And he fabricated some of this. And he also wrote this with uh, Alex Haley, who was a narrative fiction writer, historical narrative fiction. So there are liberties taken in this. What I recommend is that you pick up this book. This is by Les Payne, who is the authoritative biographer of Malcolm. And he spent 50 years going to all of Malcolm's family, all of his friends, everyone that Malcolm references in this book. He double checks it in this book. And he gets a lot of information about Malcolm that no one ever has known. Oh, my God. It's all like fresh tea. And I'm reading this book and like giggling and laughing and being shocked. And Sarah's like, what are you reading? I'm like, I know stuff about Malcolm X I did not expect. I won't spoil it for you, but there's some crazy shit in here. Man, I got to read uh, that. And this guy won a Pulitzer. Black book to write in, right horizon. Close the black book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so that, that was my Malcolm X plug. I've been, I've been plugging him a lot because I think people need to be exposed to his work. And I've been listening to his speeches and getting that, mm. man, that fire, that fire. I miss that. I know we're transitioning way off of off of oh, no, no, booking now, but yeah. I missed that uh, in, in 2020 when everything was happening. I felt a little bit upset that Obama came so uh, what I feel was like lackluster to a time when he could have stepped up after he left the office. I feel like maybe he had more liberty to say what he wanted to say. Yeah. He didn't really step up. And I just wish we had someone who, I guess it has to be me and you, but you know, mm-hmm. I just watched the quality of content that Malcolm put out. 70 years ago, 60 years ago, and it's better than what anybody's putting out now. And it's like, yeah. <laughs> why are his speeches still holding so much water? You know, I don't know. Yeah, it's so true. I, I can't wait to read that other book. I, I've never heard of it, so I'm so excited about it. The Dead Are Rising, that, that book. Oh, and so, and this, so this guy... Uh, so this guy interviewed his family and all of his siblings for 50 years. Then he died, and his, his daughter finished it. <laughs> Oh, wow. So this was his whole life. What? That's his crazy. whole life. Wow. Yeah, his whole life. Yeah, his whole life was following Malcolm X. Oh my God! I'm so excited. I'm literally yeah. gonna get that. I'm yeah. gonna go online and get that right after. I'm going that. through. I'm going through a phase. You know, I go. I go through different stages where I go through deep dives. I think you might be the same with music too, where I, oh, yeah. I will consume, a, all of someone's work and then digest it all for a period oh, of time. Oh my God. I wish people did that more often. There's so much to learn from some of these folks, right? And uh, I just feel, and I know it's harder yeah. now because we're oversaturated with content and it's hard to focus on somebody in one thing, uh, which is a shame. Uh, but, and I and I'll take responsibility for myself too, because I remember I used to do that much more. I still do it, but I used to do it so much more, you know, and you can see 
uh, you know, I see you have a guitar back there and I have, um, a, you know, a couple guitars. Oh, one yep, yep. Son until I realized the small one was for my son and I'd forgotten he's left-handed and that's a right-handed guitar. And I was like, crap. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> you got to change <laughs> the strings around her. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but when I learned, uh, I taught myself years ago, uh, someone had told me, it was actually when I was at CNN, uh, the anchor, Jim Murray said, what do you listen to? And I was naming all these people to listen to. And he goes, you should listen to the Beatles. And I remember the first thought was, oh, that's typical. Okay, whatever. And he goes, no, 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 listen to them. Listen to them. Um, yeah, yeah, whether yeah. you're a fan or not, just go down, go down a rabbit hole, take a deep dive, because let me tell you something about pop music. Those guys knew how to write a pop song. And to this day, you oh, look yeah. at the chord progression of the average pop song, and those oh, chord yeah. progressions began with them. Mm-hmm. And he goes, because prior to them, it was just, mm-hmm. you know, the Buddy Holly chord progression, and it was just very simple. But then they started that way. Then they did this. Trust me, you, you'll see. And then I went down and I started looking at their chord progression and seeing some of these other popular current songs in between when they came out to now. And it's the same chord progression, just a different arrangement. And I'm like, oh, yeah. Oh. Yeah. So, oh, yeah. Yeah. And then I went down a Beatles deep dive, their anthology series, that which was a 12 part documentary, which I'm sure you're aware of. 12 part, two hours each. So almost 24 hours. I've probably seen that in total six times. Never gets old. And I bought, I bought the box set and I watch it all. And it's just the, the footage and the amount of content that they put into there. And all the interviews are from them. Even John, they used all his interviews before he passed away. And then the, George was still alive at the time. So all the interviews going up to the point that they shot it was the story told by them. And I just and from that point on, I just became so immersed and I started doing that with other things. So that kind of reminds me about what you're doing now with Malcolm currently. Yeah, it's phenomenal. I mean, you go down these these deep rabbit holes and you start to listen to stuff that wasn't on the radio. You start to understand the story behind the albums. You start to understand what was going on in the artist's personal lives. Um, I do that a lot with I mean, you know, I'm a huge uh, rap fan, but also like even recently I discovered uh, I discovered Fleetwood Mac. Like and I really started going into Fleetwood Mac. They go yeah. fucking hard, bro. Right? Hard. Yes. Oh man. Emotional. Yeah. Really good stuff. They got you know, stuff. and I'm like, you know, 30 years late. Yeah. Oh man. I've worked with um uh Stevie Nicks uh a couple times. And then I and then three times I worked with um oh my god, one blank on his name. Not Mick Fleetwood, the other dude, uh, Lindsey Buckingham. Yeah, I worked with him three times. And uh I didn't it's amazing. I only knew Stevie Nicks, yeah. Yeah, they they just uh, the words and the lyrics and the, what they put into their music and and same thing, man. You hear their influence still going strong with a lot of music today. Oh, for sure. Yeah, and I I always like like to study the greats. I think even you know most that that's why I like Kanye so much because Kanye is like style agnostic. Yeah. He, oh my god, that's so true. He's you know you look at something like Donda and you can't even really criticize it because it's so much. Di- there's nothing to compare it to. Yeah. So it's like it slips through your fingers. Like, what do I? I can't criticize it because I can't say it's better or worse than anything. It's just different yeah. than anything I've ever heard. And yeah. every album is like that. And that. And so he gets mad because he doesn't get a lot of radio play. But he doesn't create things that would go on a radio. Yeah, yeah, that is so true. That is so true. And yeah. I always remind myself of that because I remember every time he puts out a new album, I always listen to it. Of course I am. But it always takes me a moment to understand it because my first inclination is because we're conditioned to think that everyone has to stay in their lane. And I'm always like, what is this? I don't even know what this is. And then, you know, and then I have to remind myself, wait, look, he can do what the hell he wants. And he is, like you said, style agnostic. And it's amazing. He, he, he constantly sets trends 
And then people will typically criticize his albums. And then about three years later, they'll be like, that was a really good sound that you came up with. About three to five years later, you know? Yeah. That is um, so true. And I've watched that every single cycle with his albums. That is so true. People will be quick to criticize this stuff. And then and they're always late to the party. And then they start thinking like, oh, my God, now I'm understanding it. Oh, I'm hearing it, you know? And the thing is, because there are always other acts. Even the fashion. Yeah, I'll, yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, right. And then same thing with the fashion. Do you know he, he just won a wall? You, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And do you know that he just won a lawsuit uh, against Walmart? No. He sued Walmart because their generic Walmart shoe brand copied Yeezys so specifically that it violated their patent. And it's like wow. he won in court. I didn't and know it's that. like you can't say he's not having an impact on society if Walmart is <laughs> yeah, patent right. infringing Yeezy. Yeah. Walmart, you know? Wow. Yeah. Which is crazy to me because he's also like you're like, what are you he's also like falling apart publicly too. Yeah. Right. <laughs> yeah. He's having a meltdown, you know? Yeah. And like man. his arch nemesis is Pete Davidson. Yeah. <laughs> That'll be the last like, can thing. you imagine? Yeah. It's like if Superman's arch nemesis was Spongebob. Yeah. (laughs) That's, that's, you know, it's like, I don't mean to laugh, but it's so funny that Pete Davidson has this over him and he feels so slighted by Pete Davidson. And I'm thinking like Kanye, man, it's like, (laughs) you are too brilliant for that, man. It's like, don't get caught up on this. Yeah. Just, but you know what? In, in marriage is so hard enough. And That's to true. see your, your, it's like your Kim Kardashian. It's, I mean, it, there's an element of it is that's mine, you know? And he's like, you're not gonna, and I have five kids with her. You're no, 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 no. If I have that's five true. kids with you forever, you're mine. That's true. Sorry. Yeah. That you is know, true. I'm never, you know, yeah. there's, there's this uh, scene in one of my favorite movies, uh, Mask of Zorro. And he goes, uh, w- 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 when Raphael is sending, uh, Diego de la Vega, played by Anthony Hopkins to jail, he goes, you'll never be rid of me! Yeah. Raphael, you'll never be rid of me! And that's Kanye to Kim. You'll never be rid of me! Oh my God. <laughs> you know? <laughs> she will never. <laughs> Kanye <laughs> is a presence and a force. She will life. never be rid of Kanye West. Oh my God. For when life. When he had moved across you know? the street from her, I didn't believe it. I was like, that's a lie. Yeah. Like, Where'd you guys hear that? And I looked it it's up. It's amazing. Like, oh, it's amazing what he's done. <laughs> yeah. Well, finish up the story with Prince. What happened with Kanye and Prince? Oh, yes, yes. So so basically, Kanye, he, you know, Prince didn't want to say hi. Prince just goes, no, thank you. And um, <laughs> yeah, he's, and he was polite about it. He just goes, no, thank you. And Kanye could hear it because he's popping over the stage manager trying to look in Prince's room. You know, like, look at me like a prairie dog. And he hears Prince go, um, yeah, no, thank you. And he, his face, just, you could see the soul get taken out of Kanye. Very childlike. And I just remember thinking, oh my God. And he stormed out of there. Stormed out. Left. And I remember the, uh, the uh, talent coordinator walked him to the car and said, wow, he was upset about something. He just kind of stormed off in a tantrum. And we were like, well, because Prince didn't want to say hi to him. And I remember my attitude at the time was, he think he is who's this Kanye guy think he is he doesn't even have an album out is he crazy right and I was just thinking, serve himself and then college dropout came out and I remember thinking oh okay okay I see he's sure of himself but for good reason so and so he's I always, as good as he says he is yeah yeah and the funny thing is I always use that in his defense you know of course he's had 
tons of things. He's an easy target. And no matter how I felt about him, whether it was pro or con, uh, I would always go back to that moment. And I would always tell people that story and say, you know, it's not that anything changed. He was always very sure of himself. And he always felt that he, you know, deserved something, but in a good way because he had a vision, right? And no one seemed to listen to him or give him that, you know, like like that scene in the documentary when he's, I tell friends, even if you're not a Kanye fan, watch it because it's inspiring. But that scene where he's going around to the A&R office at Rockefeller Records and rapping the people. Yep. And they're just trying to do their work. But he's going from office to office, playing his music and just wants them to hear the song to take him seriously. And and I just, you know, that to me is inspiring that he even has that. And then there was even that moment where he's in the office rapping and another woman comes in and starts talking to the woman he's rapping to. And he just stops rapping. Oh, my God. And it's awkward. And he just turns to the to the wall and fixes this crooked framed record <laughs> just like, oh, well what man. i thought was interesting so so great about that doc which i think there's a new episode out this week yeah i um, watched it is yeah, that last night is that uh yeah i gonna watch it is that um the fact that they were recording all this content so long ago means that not only him but many people some people were sure that he was going to be the one of the few because yeah. they put so much work into filming. The fact, because I had followed Kanye since all the stuff that he was documenting. I had no idea there was video footage of him signing with, with Jay-Z. I had no idea there's video footage of him in the office rapping. And you would have had to be pretty sure of yourself all this years to maintain all that footage, to, to document it so meticulously, all of that. That shows really intentional foresight and planning and that, I think, is the underpinning of what he's created. Let's not forget that. Yeah. Yeah. Man, that's a good point. And I love that. Decades. Formula. Decades. Yeah. And I always love that formula where when I first saw Hoop Dreams, I was blown away. Blown away. And I love that that director had the idea of putting that together, following these people, that slow burn documentation. And that's always mm-hmm. been a thing for me. And then... What's it called? This is not a game. The LeBron James one. Have you seen that one? I haven't seen that one. That one, one is phenomenal. But same same type of archival footage. Yeah, yeah. they basically because his high school, he and his teammates were so dominant, and I think it starts when he's yeah. a freshman in high school, and they track it all the way up. So this they've been documenting him since then, and they put it out. I'm gonna say it came out in yeah. 2016 or something, and they were tracking him all the way up to yeah. that point. And you're and obviously they saw something in him in in high school as a freshman, actually in middle school, and because they it picks up when he's finishing middle school and going into high school. So clearly, they saw something in him then. And I remember prior to that documentary, it's not that I, I was a LeBron hater; I just wasn't a fan. But seeing that work ethic uh, that he had as a child, and the the amount of you know grit and hustle, you know, and that's look, I'm not trying to live vicariously through my son. Um, and I, I always tell my wife that growing up as an athlete, I was never the star athlete, never, ever, never had the best skill, but in many cases, I was always one of the best because I friggin' worked my ass off as an athlete when I played soccer, when I played whatever sport I played growing up, you know, and even to this day, I play, uh, this Sunday soccer crew. We've been playing for the last 20 years, same group of people. You know, nice. hands down, I, I can safely say I'm the best defender. I'll give myself that. And, you know, and on offense, <laughs> yeah. and on offense here and there, I'll hold my own. But I play with mostly Latin guys and a, and a few Europeans, but it's mostly Latin guys. And, you know, they're, they're on a different level. They breathe soccer. Um, but at <laughs> least 
I can walk out of the game knowing that even if I don't score too many goals or whatever, I can walk out of the game knowing that I busted my ass and I hustled. So my son, I never want to push anything on kids. I'm not that father who's just like, you need to be a star athlete. It's not even about that. He just kind of phones it in when he's doing athletics. And he, when he really pushes himself, he's amazing. And he's naturally, he's big for his age. Uh, so he's a little clumsy, but he is strong and fast. So I hate when I see him just phone it in. So it drives me insane. So I want to show right. him the LeBron doc, and I also want to show him The Last Dance. Yeah, it's, it's, well, The Last Dance is a great documentary. And it's, <laughs> it's a, yeah, I'm not a father yet, but I can understand the wanting them, to, wanting to encourage them to a point where they can understand that their accomplishments are a result of their own mentality and their own drive. <laughs> And also wanting to lean back enough where they don't feel resentful of you being the one who wants to yes. accomplish their goals for them. Yeah. Oh my God. That's you the know. Big but you, you, you have decades of experience now where you're like, if you just start this now, you'll mm-hmm. be so much better off when you're my age. But they haven't had your experience yet, so it doesn't translate. Yeah. You know. Yeah. If you just understood this concept of discipline yeah. now, it's just yeah. like, yeah, but I'm I'm ten. <laughs> and that's so true, and you. And but that's but so key, and, and yeah. that's something that I always have to remind myself. My wife is so good at reminding me about that. She's like, he's eight. He doesn't get what you're telling him. He doesn't. He has no context. I'm like, I know, but I'm just. You can, yeah, you can show through example, but it's just like. Yeah. Yeah. I I I practice with with my, with my nephews, and they're they're you know they're like in their their late. You know, they're like 10 to 13. And that's kind of like, mm. you kind of like, the, the uncle is the great position because I don't have any real responsibility. But <laughs> it's a, but it's, but it's a great, te- it's a great testing ground of like, yeah. let me give you this idea and see what you do with it. And it's like, oh, through repeated exposure and through examples is how you're going to learn. Because if I just tell you, listen, taxes, that's going to fuck you up. This math isn't important, but that math is, uh, you know, people skills are really important. Here's how to not piss off a woman. Like, it's just going to just go out one ear. They're not going to, you know, you have to like lead by example, I think. That is so true. That is so true. And yeah, I always have to remind myself of that. And that's, yeah, for sure. That's all I want from him. From him. I see other fathers at these games, these sporting events who lose their mind and they're that quintessential, you know, living vicariously through their kid. And I actually stay quiet. I, I'm yelling in my head, like, oh, God, oh, my God, do that. You know what I mean? But I stay quiet because I know once that movie breaks, it's over. And, and I never want him to feel that I'm forcing this on him because, you know, I know that's going to make him lose interest. I just want him to try hard and know that if he tries, and especially because he has the skill set, that he will succeed or at least walk away knowing that he tried. And that's uh, that's a big thing. But, again, he's young and I guess that's something that's going to come with time. Yeah, I mean, some of these superstar athletes, like, uh, you know, I, I teach a kid's class at jiu-jitsu, and so I'll, I'll be working mm-hmm. with kids who are like 6 to 10, and you can spot them early. It, it's not just the talent, it's the the mindset. Oh, God, you know? yes. And sometimes, you know, you have these focused 8-year-olds who are just like, I want to practice again, 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 and you're like, why? What happened to you? Who hurt you? You're only 8, <laughs> you know? Why are you so into this? But those are the ones who it's like, oh, you used to by by the time they're thirteen, it's like, oh, you're whooping like seventeen year old ass, yeah. you know. And it's like that's how it starts. Same thing with basketball. You see those bas- those kids, those those eight year old kids who are just out there over and over yeah. and over again. You're like, man, you know, yeah. I that wasn't my experience. I I was similar to you where I was all, what I call myself was like I was always like the slowest fast person. So in track, everyone breaks up. The slow people are all the way in the back. Then there's everyone average. 
Then there's the fast group. <laughs> I was the slowest person at the back of the fast group. And it was mostly because I was indifferent. I was like, I got to try 20% harder to get to the front. But everyone knows I'm fast. I'm still here with you. I just don't. Why do I have to go? But that's also why I wouldn't have won a championship. You can't win a championship with that mentality. Man, I'm laughing. I'm laughing because I ran track in high school also. And the reason I'm laughing is because I was. You know what I'm talking about. Yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. I was too slow for the 100. Fast enough for the 200, but not <laughs> that fast. But fast enough. <laughs> Mediocre yeah. 200 runner. Yeah, exactly. And I had enough endurance to be one of the few guys who they slapped on the 800. And I was just like, nah, you can't make me run the, run the 800, man. I'm not doing that, right? Because, you know, that's the last. Bro, run. I ran the 8 too. I fucking oh. hated the 8. Oh, I used to cry. The, the 8 was my race. I hated it. I would throw up before the race. I, I used to rub Icy Hot on my legs just to not feel them. Yeah. Oh, my God. I hated yeah. it. That was my punishment for not having the endurance to be a distance runner, but not having the, the speed to be a 100 runner. And it just... Dis or the discipline, really. It's really yeah, the yeah. discipline. That's right. That's what it was. Let's, let, yeah. let's be honest. Yeah. Well, okay, and the 400 was really hard, too. The 400 you, the is a hard race. It's hard. That's a hard, hard. fucking race. Yeah. I think that's actually the hardest race. Oh, yeah. I, I would always tell people that. The 400 you know? is another level. Because, you know, people who didn't run track, you know, they would, you know, they, I would, when the Olympics come around and you hear people who didn't run track comment on the, you know, on running. And they would, I would hear them say certain things like, oh, jogging or, you know, doing this, this and that. I'm like, oh, you know, the 400, you're flat out sprinting. <laughs> that is a long ass sprint the whole time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. The 800 yeah. is a decent, the 800 you can kind of pace yourself. Yeah. Yeah, but it has to be fast, a fast pace. A fast the four hundred yeah. is a sprint the whole time. It's a, it's a, it's three hundred sprint and a hundred <laughs> super sprint. Yeah, you know. Yeah, it is. That it's a horrible race. Up, oh my god, brutal. Yeah, and that, and yeah. you have to run eight hundreds to get good at the four hundred. Yes, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, man. I I remember just I ran it, but I remember hating track. But feeling love and victory Hated it. every time during the meet. But just practice, you just had to have the mindset, man. You had to have, you had the discipline and mindset. It's all mindset. And, yeah, like I even – yeah, I know kids who are like – because they have youth track and field, which I was more like high school, which high school is you're starting to develop more competitive mindset. But yeah. I see youth track and field. I'm like, wow, these they got these kids in like proper running tournaments and like at this young age wow. and really training like real athletes and that's i think why athletes tend to get better and better over generations because we start them younger we have better yeah. technology better nutrition better injury prevention and rehab yeah. all that stuff you know that is so true is it do you feel that way with uh, jiu-jitsu also do you feel that there are a lot more younger people doing it oh dude man when i when i was i mean i spent a lot of my childhood doing useless martial arts karate taekwondo shit like that that wouldn't help me in a street fight that wouldn't really do anything for me now i feel like i've only for the past six or seven years really gotten into the good stuff but okay. you have kids who are starting you know like i said super young and mma wasn't a thing when we were kids you know, now true. it's a it's a legitimate sport and people will plan their career for it now so yeah you got i mean there are kids who will beat my ass <laughs> <laughs> you know it's so out of doubt they got the muscle memory man that's so funny you say that because i think about that all the time i swear to god and i'm sure it crosses your mind too but i think about this all the time i think about what it's going to be like when my son's a teenager and when i have to 
defend them in this situation <laughs> and I have to prepare myself to get my ass kicked because I know kids these days, at least teenagers, are doing MMA. And again, you know, when you, <laughs> you just had to deal with it. If there was an older guy, you knew that, you know, if you try to go toe-to-toe to him with boxing or just flat-out fisticuffs, that his natural strength, his old man strength or, you know, older body is going to take you out. Because <laughs> there really isn't technique, so you just have to rely on luck, right? And then this older person <laughs> who can just take you out. And I think about like, damn, what it's gonna, what's gonna be like when if my son gets messed with, and I gotta take a stand, am I gonna get my ass kicked by a teenager? <laughs> oh man, start, start training. Listen, I started training. So my dad uh, started training jujitsu with me a couple months oh, really? ago, and wow. uh, and yeah, and I've been training for about for about seven years. He just started training. He's getting good now. He's getting flexible, and you know, he's one of those guys like you were saying, old man strength. I mean, he's not that old, but he's you know, he, he's a big. Huge fucking black dude. So he doesn't, he scares people just walking around. So this isn't about him having to necessarily defend himself. Yeah. This is about him getting in touch with what he can do. But yeah. also the technique is really useful. And he's becoming more flexible. We're getting to spend some time together. Uh, I think you guys should both train. By the time he's a teenager, you'll both be black belts. <laughs> Actually, I should. I saw you. What belt did you just get? I just got purple. Okay. And then I saw, is that a, is that a tradition where they, where they smack people with the belt? Yeah, they just they smack you. They Man, really they, you they try to attention. smack you as hard as like, they can. Ah, I watched the video. <laughs> it does hurt. It definitely hurts. It definitely hurts. Yeah, I, I was I was super excited about that because you know with jujitsu, and now I feel like every podcast I started to talk about this. And one yeah, of my uh, my clients told me, uh, if you say jujitsu three times in the mirror, Daniel will appear like Candyman. <laughs> but <laughs> but one thing one thing I love about it is that you know you don't. It's something that I can do for myself outside of work that gives me a real sense of like purpose and value and -hmm. progression. And it's something that no one can take from me because I feel like online, uh, there's so much like this game of perceptions. How big are you? Where are you at in position of this or that? But on the mats, what you can do is just what you can do. And you only, you only gain skill. There are no, there are no, uh, you know, there are no false players on the mat. Everything that you do on there and everything that you gain is through your hard work. They don't give out belts uh, very easily. You know, it takes the average black belt like twelve years to get a to get a to get a black belt. You know, so it's not they're not just passing them out. And it just builds a community that I can you know just just interact with outside of the business space because I feel like that's really it's, it's important to have a, like a, a separate space. Like you have your home, you have your mm-hmm. work, and sometimes those are the same space. So you need a separate another space that's not about any of those things that has an, another community. I think that's healthy for you mentally. I love that. And I agree. You got that with, with soccer. Yeah, man. I it's I, I I my wife knows that it's for me, it's something I have to do every Sunday. And she plans around it. I mean, it could be the biggest thing. Sometimes it, it could even be trips. She's like, Are you gonna play soccer? She'll plan around it because she knows even for my mental health that I need it. And just, you know, just to feel good. And it's a tradition. And the guys I've been playing with. You know, we are all in our uh, I'm still on the younger end of things, but we're all in our mid 40s, 50s. And there are a couple of them in the 60s who are really good, too. But oh, shit. Yeah, it's crazy. And there are a couple of young guys who we play with. And I remember when one in particular started coming around, just like how what you said earlier, how younger athletes are better because they have the co- different conditioning and they start early this and that now. And this one guy, man, just on another level, he was in his 20s. And I remember getting mad thinking. Wait, who invited this young guy? Why is this young guy coming around so much? And I'm, <laughs> I realized, you need that. Yeah, right. Yeah, it does keep on your toes. But I realized back when we started playing, this guy that we played with, Carlos, his young son, who was about, he was a toddler, used to come and watch us play when we started playing. And then right around the time where he got to about my son's age now, when he was eight, 
he stopped coming around. He just disappeared. So this young adult is playing with us. And then I realized, holy crap, that's the guy who used to be a toddler and come and watch us play. Now he's an adult and he's playing with us. And to me, it me like, <laughs> he's smoking us. Yeah, right. And smoking us. But it felt good because I started thinking, wow, we've been keeping up with this tradition so long that this toddler who used to watch us is now playing with us as an adult. So it made me feel good about my age. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. That's consistency. Crazy. Man, I, you, you're, you're such an amazing person to talk to. You're a great storyteller. Great oh, storyteller. I feel like I was watching a movie just hearing. And I think I won't give you all the credit because I feel like you've heard so many good storytellers. You've gotten very good at it. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. I always that's one thing um, that's always been big for me. You're, my mom, my mom was an amazing storyteller. And I'll never forget her saying something that stuck with me. She said he complained about people who when they told when they told stories or more so when they gave an explanation of something, she hated that there wasn't a beginning, middle and an end. And I remember that was an important thing. Yeah, yeah. He said, I need to know the details. And she would get mad if she asked me something. And I'm like, ah, yeah, and I would just keep it short and concise as kids will normally do. And she just was so Tell good at telling stories. Yeah, right. <laughs> and she was so good at telling stories. And I'll never forget that line that stuck with me. So from that point on, by the time I got to school, because, you know, uh, I went to college for journalism and they also, you had, they taught you everything surrounding journalism. So we had to take a voice and articulation class. Everyone had to uh -huh. lose their accents. Uh -huh. uh, we had to take uh, speech writing and public speaking class and all this stuff. So by the time I got there and they started touting everything you say must have a beginning, middle and an end. I, you know, but said it differently. I remember thinking, oh, I'm already, I already was told that by my mom. So I, I definitely always attribute that to her with everything that I tell. And it drives me insane when my wife tells me a story. I'm always just like, wait, what? She'll pick up in the middle somewhere. I'm like, what is this? Uh, some type of... Like, that's not a story. Yeah, right? <laughs> like, that's not a story. <laughs> All over the place. Is this an art deco film? Well, I don't know where, why are we starting here. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I, think about, I think about journalism, and I think, like, really good journalism is like eating a, is like eating a full, like, four-course meal or whatever. Because you, you have the whole setup of it, you have the context, you have the little details, elements, you have a dessert, like a payoff, and then you have mm -hmm. maybe sometimes like a coffee, like a little teaser afterwards yeah. or the next thing. And like when I read like a good New York Times article or something like beefy, yeah. you know, in, a, in, a, in a, the Atlantic or something, you know, it really reads nice, uh, Rolling Stone, it really, really reads nice. And Love that's it. real storytelling. Journalists tell oh. that. Yeah. I know. Yeah. I'm always surprised when I talk about the Atlantic and so many people I know. A, I've never heard of it or never read The Atlantic. And I'm just like, wait, what? How do you? And it just blows my mind because they have the best stories in there, the best exposés, the best interviews. They have great stuff, man. Oh, so good. So good. And, and I'm amazed at how many people don't know it even. I get it if someone says, oh, I know it, but I haven't read it. But I know a lot of people who are just like, wait, I'm talking about The Atlantic? Wait, what? It's crazy. Man, I could, I could, let, let's, let's do, let's do a round two. I got to hit the gym. Yeah, I got to hit the gym. Yeah. Let's do a round two. Okay, yeah. And I would love, love to do a round two. I feel like we can talk about so much more. So yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, and like I said, I, I, I tend to talk too much. So sorry if my print story went too long. <laughs> no, I, I wanted that. Okay, That's, cool. As soon as I saw we were going into prints, I was like, this is where we're going. <laughs> I mean, I could, I could say, well, I could say, well, Chris, well, tell us about networking because you're so good at that. You spent a career doing that. Maybe we we'll do that next episode. This was the prince. This was the, the conversation on P and a primer on P. <laughs> yeah. And the next, so yeah, much love. Do you want to direct people anywhere, or do you want to? Do you want to just leave it in the show notes? Uh, I guess yeah, leave it in the show notes. I, I it's funny. My uh, IG is private, and my Twitter I keep open. I don't even know if people look at that anymore. But my Twitter is uh, God. If I change the name. 
I think it's at Dr. Finesse. <laughs> I think so. Doctor Dr. Not you won't be able to find him online. Yeah, exactly. you don't Basically, about is what we're saying. Yeah, I, yeah, but I, he I he is on Clubhouse. He does occasionally come on Clubhouse and talk for two hours. So <laughs> that could be something where you could find him. Oh, there you go. Um, yeah. And that's how I knew how this conversation was going to be. I'm like, I've heard you before. I know that you can go. <laughs> um, so yeah, I definitely looking so, forward to part two. All right, man. I'll, I'll put it in. I'll do the. I'll go to the calendar. <laughs> Much love. I'll talk to you soon, Chris. Peace. All right, man. Take care. Wasn't that a funny one? Thank you, my friend, so much for listening to that. I hope you enjoyed listening to it as much as I loved creating it. Clearly, I almost fell on the ground some of those episodes or some of those moments. Uh, now, make sure that you tap in with us so you don't miss an episode. Of course, if you're listening on Spotify or iTunes or Stitcher or wherever, make sure that you subscribe on that platform. I think we're even on Audible now, which is kind of crazy. And after you subscribe, make sure that you leave a comment. Make sure that you leave a review. Why? Because it helps us get better guests. The more that we uh, show that the show is doing well, the better guests we get when we can pitch them. And then you can have fun things to listen to and watch while you're in the car or while you're on the train or while you're just doing your cleaning throughout the day. Anyway, that's all I got for you. Uh, make sure you check out newwaveentrepreneur.com to get all the updates on the show as they come out. The water is warm. The tide is rising. So jump on in. Let's get ready to surf this new wave. Daniel out. Daniel out.